Hello, you are listening to Perspectives from the Economist Intelligence Unit, and I'm your host, Chris Clay, Global Editorial Lead for Trade and Globalization with the EIU. This is a new podcast which provides perspectives for industry and management to understand how the world is changing and how that creates opportunities to be seized and, more importantly at the moment, risks to be managed. Each episode will draw on the expertise of our editors, as well as executives, academics, and authors, providing insights from our global program of research and events. This episode is supported by SAS, a global provider of data and analytics software and services that help turn data into intelligence. Today, we are once again talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. In the last episode, my colleagues Charlie Ross and Andy Staples discussed the results from the first Global Business Barometer, a survey of 2,700 executives from around the world designed to track sentiment amidst the pandemic. The next barometer will be released in the middle of June, and we will be releasing another podcast around that time to discuss the results. As a bridge, I'll be speaking today with my London-based colleague, Elizabeth Sukar. EIU Managing Editor and Global Editorial Lead for Healthcare. In addition to her regular duties, Liz is responsible for the EIU's COVID-19 track, a tool that monitors confirmed coronavirus cases over time. Liz and I will start by discussing the situation in the UK before broadening out into topics like which countries are doing well in managing the pandemic, contact tracing, and the outlook for vaccine and treatments. So with that said, Liz, welcome to EIU Perspectives. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Liz, you're based in the UK. When we asked executives for the Global Business Barometer based there to rate the country's response to the COVID outbreak on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, 10 being the strongest possible response, only 8% of those surveyed gave a mark between 8 and 10, which is a strongest response. So that's a very small number of respondents. What do you think is behind this dismal show of confidence from the business sector in the Johnson government's handling of the outbreak? This is surprising, considering all the support the UK is giving businesses through the furlough scheme, grants and loans. But there is the negative shock possibility from a no-deal Brexit, with the EU simmering away in the background. It always comes back to trust, and some of the communications from the UK administration in dealing with COVID-19 has been confusing and sometimes vague, which can feed into lack of confidence for the business sector. For instance, in Johnson's evening announcement on Sunday the 10th of May, businesses were given only 12 hours notice about returning back to work without guidance published at the same time to support them. So there were questions around how can people go back to work using public transport without those guidelines, and this can also dent confidence. Also, I think another factor is the easing of the lockdown measures in the UK has led to a breakdown in the UK's four-nation approach to dealing with COVID-19, with Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales refusing to replace the stay-home messaging with Johnson's new stay-alert slogan. So clear and effective communication is very important in such a situation. With that said, in your evaluation or your judgment, how well has the UK performed compared to other countries amidst the pandemic? You know, making such comparisons are really difficult. This is because countries test for COVID-19 in different ways and are counting deaths in different ways. So some count deaths in hospitals, while others also include those in care homes. 
China's figures have been questioned and so have those of Russia, you know, which have seen around 10,000 new cases per day for some days, yet the deaths in Russia are pretty low. We are not really comparing like with like, but, you know, people are making such comparisons. So given that long, you know, those provisions there I've just stated, and looking at the numbers on face value, which is probably unwise, the UK has not done well in this pandemic. In early May, the UK overtook Italy to become the worst hit country by COVID-19 in Europe. The disease now has killed around 34,000 people in the UK, compared to 32,000 in Italy. And the UK, as everyone knows, comes second after the US, which has seen around 91,000 deaths. But if you look at impact from deaths on a deaths per million perspective, Belgium far surpasses the UK at around 784 deaths per million population to the UK's around 513. Again, this disparity probably has much to do with the way COVID-19 deaths are counted. Belgium is counting deaths in hospitals and care homes, but also including deaths in care homes that are suspected not confirmed as COVID-19 cases. I understand there's a whole mix of different measures and metrics involved in evaluating countries' responses and performance in the face of this pandemic. What metric, in your view, should we be looking at then? It will take some time after this pandemic is over to really analyse the impact of COVID-19 overall on mortality in our societies. Looking at excess deaths is more helpful as it will capture the number of deaths that were higher than previous years. And this is quite complex as we try to untangle deaths from cancer, stroke, heart attacks. We know, for example, in the UK that attendances at A&E have fallen sharply. And this is really concerning. Before the pandemic, some 2 million patients a month were visiting A&E in England. But in April, that dropped to around 900,000. It is also worrying, as we know, that people from a lower socioeconomic background tend to rely on A&E for their care. Just for the purpose of our audience's understanding, could you tell us what A&E stands for? Oh, sure, sure. Accident and emergency. (laughs) Okay, thank you for that. Okay, so that said, which countries do you think are doing well in the face of this pandemic? We've seen countries that have acted quickly, like Australia and South Korea, and got a handle of the pandemic, are doing much better while you know, the UK and the US, which took their time to act and allowed the virus to take hold, have fared worse. But what is important to note is you know, how these countries will be doing in 12 months' time, for example, and compared to a country like Sweden, which has supported herd immunity to a certain extent. One public health official thinks Stockholm may reach herd immunity as early as this month. And you know, will those countries of higher rates now suffer less later? All big questions. The reason for the UK's current high death toll was that it just didn't lock down fast enough. It's that simple, really. The WHO, the World Health Organization, declared it a pandemic on the 11th of March, and the UK introduced its lockdown measures on the 23rd of March. The R number, that's mentioned quite a lot these days, and the aim is to get it to less than one. So, you know, even a few days makes a huge difference. There's also a clear divide in Europe between the West and the East, with the latter apparently doing better. In richer Western European countries, public events and gatherings were still going on in the second and third weeks of March. But in Central and Eastern European countries, they saw what was happening in Italy and brought in lockdowns early and really hard. And so fewer global travel connections and lower population density suddenly became advantages. The obligatory wearing of masks outdoors was brought in very early in the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And that you know, obviously helped slow the spread. So if we did look more in detail... The start of the epidemic in the Czech Republic was around the 2nd of March, and it swiftly introduced a stay-at-home order 10 days later on the 12th of March. In contrast, the start of the epidemic in Italy was around the 22nd of February, but its stay-at-home order came around the 22nd of March. 
Likewise, in the UK, the start of the epidemic was around the 28th of February, and its stay-at-home order was not introduced until the 23rd of March. If we go back to crude numbers in the Czech Republic, there have been only about 28 deaths per million population, and in the Slovak Republic, it is lower at five. Remember, we are not always comparing like with like. And again, when you say the R number, you mean the reproduction rate. I know we're all becoming amateur epidemiologists today, but that's the R naught number you're referring to there, yes? Exactly, that's right. And that's a number that everyone's getting very acquainted with now. And we want it to be less than one because that means, you know, fewer people are transmitting the virus. Okay, so back to the UK briefly. So the UK started to ease its lockdown nine days ago on May 10th. Uh, To date, in your view, how is the easing measures going? Yeah, so people were told to return to work if they could not work from home around, you know, the 10th of May. And they have the option now of unlimited exercise outside. You know, over May, many more European countries have eased lockdown measures, like in Italy and Greece, you know, allowing restaurants to reopen. But the UK response has not been very united, as I said earlier, with Scotland and Wales taking different approaches. And, you know, this fragmentation is also being mirrored in the US of states taking different approaches. But local measures and decisions are going to depend on local infection rates and the abilities of healthcare systems to cope. It's going to be different in a global city such as London to a rural town near Scotland. However, while the UK is easing its lockdown, it still does not have in place a test and trace system. Apps are being developed, which will help us, and we need this technology when larger numbers of people are involved. But with any technology, you need this backed up by traditional public health contact tracing measures, which involves people interviewing people and contacting them. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you again, well, myself and listeners to maybe elaborate on what you mean by contact tracing and and how it helps to contain the spread of COVID. Yes, contact tracing is, you know, well established. It's an effective public health tool to control COVID-19. So by quickly identifying and managing contacts of COVID-19 cases, this makes it possible to rapidly identify secondary cases that may arise after transmission from the the initial or primary cases. And it really only works with robust testing and surveillance systems. Contact tracing has been a key part of the response in several Asian countries that have successfully reduced infections. It is possible to scale up contact tracing by adapting traditional contact tracing approaches to available local resources and by using a number of measures, which include the use of well-trained non-public health care staff and volunteers, repurposing existing resources such as call centers, and using new technologies such as contact management software and mobile apps. The UK's NHS app is currently being tested, but it's really vital that the app is not limited to people with the latest technology. How are older people and more marginalized communities being considered? There will need to be a lot of trust building needed before we can expect wide uptake. Yeah, trust building in the context of contact tracing and using apps for this purpose has been somewhat controversial in a lot of countries. In your personal sort of view, would you use such an app? Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm up for using the app because I live in London and an area that's a hotspot for the virus. But even within my own household, there is division. For instance, my husband would decline to sign up to such an app. This really essentially comes down to trust. I think we need to safely use the tools at our disposal to alert those who have been contact to infected person so they can isolate. This is intended to stop the spread of the disease you know, as lockdown restrictions are lifted and economies and our societies return to some new normal. 
But, you know, you can only earn that trust with, with the public through transparency on your methodology and openness on the privacy concerns. Right. That makes sense. So changing tracks, people are putting their hopes, uh, and by people we mean government, society, international organizations around the world, they're putting their hopes in the discovery of vaccine. The timeline for this discovery is reported to be anywhere to the end of the year to the end of next year and, and all points in between. How is the development of a vaccine progressing in your view? So we are in this for a long time until we get a safe and effective vaccine. It's important that politics does not taint the science as the public needs to be confident with any new vaccine developed because of the existence of vaccine hesitancy. Vaccine hesitancy is a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines despite the availability of vaccination services. This is a real risk, which we have seen for the MMR and HPV vaccines. The MMR vaccine protects children against measles, which increases their risk for brain damage. In Japan, there was a drop in the HPV vaccination. This protects against cervical cancer in women from over 70% uptake in 2013 to the current rates of less than 1%. And this came after the program was suspended after a cluster of adverse events associated with the vaccine. So confidence is hugely important. There are also crucial questions that need answering, such as to what extent will a vaccine provide long-term immunity? Scientists are monitoring the virus's genetic mutations, which will help us understand if a vaccine needs to be updated every year, like the influenza virus which you know, mutates regularly. At the moment, there are eight vaccines being studied in clinical trials, and there are further 110 in preclinical evaluation, so before human experimentation. Of those eight, four are being developed in China, and it will be interesting to see you know, who is first to market, although we will need many successful vaccines to meet the need. China is not known for developing blockbuster medicines or vaccines, The US and the UK are also working on vaccines, and and yesterday very early results from Moderna showed that patients can elicit an immune response, but I caution it was a very small study. China has lost some of its international image or reputation over this crisis, and now it is talking a new narrative around the origin of the virus. And it will be interesting to see how it can influence trust long term. President Xi has now been talking about a vaccine being a global health good. And there's been a lot of debate this week at the World Health Assembly around this. Right. So what are the issues around equitable access to the vaccines, right? There are obviously a lot of political considerations involved, some of them geopolitical. The U.S.-China relationship is sort of at an ebb right now, and that may impact how the the vaccine, when it is eventually discovered, gets distributed. But what about this this issue of equitable access? Yeah, very important question. And it's right that there is this discussion around equitable access to vaccines and the World Health Organization and other organizations like CEPI, which is developing research around COVID-19, also pursuing this agenda. So if we look Back, you know, in history, recent history, around the swine flu pandemic of 2009, which was a very mild pandemic compared to COVID-19, I remember it quite clearly. Countries were tussling to have vaccine stockpiles to protect their local populations. So this sort of vaccine nationalism is inevitable. The US administration, for instance, thinks they might have a vaccine by January. Then there will probably be pressures placed on the US regulator, the FDA, to speed up that regulatory timeline that may not be seen in Europe with the European Medicines Agency. 
although the European Medicines Agency has been very helpful to researchers, it published a piece last week concerned about the number of small COVID-19 trials from academia, questioning the ethics of these underpowered trials, which may not produce robust results. You know, it's, it was asking whether these smaller trials could be part of broader platform trials. So, you know, of the 268 intervention trials in the EU, 46 involve less than 50 subjects or people. Most are in a single country, and only one involves 11 EU member states. There are over 2,000 interventional and non-interventional COVID trials registered worldwide at the moment, so quite a lot. There have been calls for open access and relaxation of IP rights, but this is not something the US administration has supported in the past. But, you know, we are living in unprecedented times and anything could be possible. In the past, the U.S. did not like countries issuing compulsory licenses, such as in Brazil or India, for public health needs. So there's a bit of history there. So until we have a vaccine, the risk of COVID-19 has to be managed with the tools at hand through social distancing, good hygiene, testing and contact tracing, avoiding mass gatherings and the use of face masks to give people confidence. It is also very hard to disentangle the effects of one of these measures over another, as many countries introduce them at the same time. So up to this point, we've been talking about uh, measures to counteract the spread of the virus, the potential for the development of vaccines, which could be anywhere from 6 to 12 to 18 months away. One thing we haven't discussed yet are the potential treatments for the vaccine. So what do you see as being the developments in this area? Yes, I mean, you're right. I mean, if we fail on the vaccine front and, you know, we don't know like how effective the vaccine might be, then we need to look closely at trials for treatments. And and there are trials out there and it will probably, you know, be a cocktail of treatments, you know, many products working together to help patients because COVID-19 affects so many organs. People will need antivirals, anti-inflammatories and organ support, not just the ventilators, but also renal support as well. So we will need to learn to live with COVID-19 as we have done in other pandemics or, you know, if other viruses such as HIV. You know, the only virus that has ever been eradicated is smallpox, and that was only made possible with contact tracing and vaccination. Okay, well, thank you for your time, Liz. I appreciate it. And I think we'll end the discussion there and hopefully for another time, a happier time when we're closer to a vaccine, if not, you know, treatments and other measures for um, combating the virus. So thanks again, Liz. So that's it for our second episode of Perspectives. Thank you again, Liz, for coming on board for this episode. And thanks again to SAS for its support of the Global Business Barometer and the first few editions of the Perspectives podcast. We'll be back in a few weeks with an update on the Global Business Barometer, hopefully showing that sentiment is ticking back towards positive territory. The full barometer results can be found at globalbusinessbarometer.economist.com. If you have any feedback or questions on this podcast or any other work that the EIU does, you can email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. Thank you again for listening to Perspectives from the editorial team at the Economist Intelligence Unit. On June 11th, my colleague Jesse Quigley-Jones, Managing Editor in Asia, will be hosting a webinar on COVID-19, the knock-on effects for chronic disease management in Asia. This is part of our Future of Healthcare webinar series. You can sign up at events.economist.com to join.